As most of you know, for the last four weeks, we've been unpacking our disciple flow that you see before you uh, during the Sunday morning sermons. This series, along with our launch initiative, have been a carefully crafted effort at sharing with you, the congregation, both what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how we as a church might do that. Your staff and leadership hope and pray that this exercise has been profitable for all of us. In one sense, even though we've laid it out there and we have launched, this journey is really just beginning and the fruit of what has been planted is yet to be realized. It is important that we do not set it all aside now as though we've finished something, but rather continue down this road of examining ourselves and our mission as a church to see if we are indeed making disciples of Jesus Christ. In this last sermon of the series, we're looking to God's word to see that a disciple is one who worships. This is perhaps the most obvious of the four, and yet it warrants reminding ourselves. And while you might accuse me of having a personal hobby horse here, and you wouldn't be entirely wrong, we might say that this feature of being a disciple is the most important of all. Listen to the words of St. Andrew's Vision 2022 statement. St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church considers worship to be of highest priority for those who would be disciples of Jesus. It is our desire to see every member be a worshiper both corporately and privately. We desire to do all that is necessary to provide the opportunity of experiencing worship from the spirit-filled and biblical perspective. Today, when you walked in the sanctuary, you were handed three items representing tools and events to fulfill that last statement that I just read. First is the worship guide itself. Why do we go to the trouble of printing this out every week and giving each of you a copy? Wouldn't it be easier just to throw it up on the screen and save a few trees in the process? Well, by giving you this tool, we're saying as you walk in the door that today you have a role, an obligation, if you will, to do your part in this service to the Lord here at St. Andrews. Here it is. This is for you, not to be a spectator, but to do the work of worship, which is yours to do. Secondly, we want you to have something to take with you from here that perhaps could help you in your private worship and devotions throughout the week. You can review the various scriptures, the elements that we use in worship, the songs, the sermon outline with your notes is there, prayer requests for our missionaries and the agencies that we support are included in here, and also under the activities calendar, you have the daily passages for our Bible reading challenge, which of course is the second item that you were given today our new Bible reading challenge card with the verse of the year on it. We encourage you to join your brothers and sisters here in reading the scriptures as outlined on this card as a means of helping you, again, in your private worship in the privacy of your home. And finally, from time to time, we provide additional musical worship opportunities here at church. In two weeks from today, we'll be having a wonderful time of Musical worship here in the sanctuary at 6 o'clock. Don't miss it. And use this flyer to invite somebody to come with you. 
Again, we view this worship guide as a tool to aid you in your private worship and in your participation in our corporate worship. And this leads nicely into the first point of our outline. Where does a disciple worship? Well, a disciple worships everywhere. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, we have an interesting encounter of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. And in the course of this conversation, the topic of worship comes up. She says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus informs her that no longer will God's presence be confined to the temple. No longer will people have to gather there in order to worship him in his presence. Under the new covenant that Jesus was delivering, God's people will worship him wherever they are and wherever they go all around the world. Secondly, a disciple worships with other disciples. As we've seen in all of the messages leading up to today, the early church in the book of Acts were together. They've connected with one another in homes. They studied the scriptures and the teachings of the apostles together. They served one another in community. They also worshiped together. In Acts 2, which we've been looking at, we have these aspects of worship that are referenced there. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and day by day attending the temple together, praising God and having favor with all the people. One of the marks of these early disciples to those that were looking on was their faithful commitment to corporate worship. The parts of a body, as we know, cannot function independently. We need each other. We need to come together to worship. This is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus and being part of the body of Christ. The next point is that a disciple worships with heaven. In our scripture reading today, Nancy so eloquently read for us, John gives us a beautiful glimpse of what worship in heaven looks like. Did you notice the similarities between the worship in heaven that Isaiah experienced in our call to worship and the worship that John witnessed in his revelation? Two experiences separated in earthly time by over 800 years, but the picture is very similar. Both of these experiences began with heaven's hymn, holy, holy, holy. We too began our service today, crying out with the heavenly host, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You've heard it said from this pulpit frequently, that as we gather to worship on the Lord's day, we are entering into that eternal worship 
that is always going on in heaven at the throne of God. This truth is unfolded for us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. One of the intents of the author of Hebrews was to aid the Jews in seeing the connections of how Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant. Throughout the book, we see contrasts between the Old and New Covenants, showing how the Old pointed to Jesus and were types foreshadowing his coming. We also see that the New Covenant fulfillments are better than the Old. At the end of chapter 12, the author contrasts the worship of the Old and new. He tells the listener that under this new and better covenant, they have not come to Mount Sinai like their ancestors, that physical mountain where God gave the law to Moses. For that place was terrifying. The holiness of God up against the wickedness and evil of the people. But, the author says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 4, the first time human blood was shed in an act of murder, God said to Adam and Eve's son Cain, the voice of of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why was Abel's blood crying out to God? It was crying for justice. It was crying for righteousness. It was crying for restitution. The world and all humanity was broken. Sin had entered in, and unimaginable wickedness would continue in the world from that time forward. It took the blood of Jesus to get an answer from God. Jesus, the mediator, the one who is the mercy seat. Oh, what a beautiful fulfillment we have here before us. How glorious is our God, and how wondrous are his ways. We no longer have to fear being too close to Mount Sinai that we might be struck down and perish before a holy God and his condemning law. But through Jesus and his righteousness given to us, our spiritual reality is that we may enter into the very throne room of heaven and worship God with the angels, the saints, and God himself. In fact, this is what we do every Sunday when we gather. The passage didn't say we will come to Mount Zion someday in the future when we pass over into heaven. No, it says you 
have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is one of those already but not yet realities of our faith. In Christ, we already worship in heaven, and one day we will slip through the veil, complete in him, with our eyes open to the full reality of his presence and glory. Oh, what an amazing privilege is ours to enter into that perfect heavenly worship even now in anticipation of our eternity with him. In our reading today, we were given a beautiful picture of what that worship service looks like. And it is there that we find the answer to the next question on the outline, who does a disciple worship? Revelation chapter four, verses eight and 11, we have this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The disciple of Jesus Christ worships the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. The one who spoke the universe and all that is into existence by the word of his power. The one who sustains his creation and holds every atom in the tension of his almighty hand. This is who is being worshipped when John arrives in heaven. But the scene doesn't end there, does it? For next in chapter 5, John sees a lamb. And upon seeing this lamb, the host of heaven sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. A disciple worships the Lamb of God, our Redeemer. Did you notice that they sang a new song? This second song wasn't in Isaiah's account of the worship of heaven, was it? That song was the holy, holy, holy of Revelation chapter four, the ancient song to the creator that had been going on at least since the creation of the universe. But here, we have a new song in heaven, a hymn of worship not only to the creator, but to the redeemer of the creation. Salvation had come. The good news had been fulfilled. For at just the right time, the lamb was slain and a people were ransomed for God. And this one, the lamb of God, deserved a new song from the choirs of heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John saw God in his eternal persons as objects of heaven's worship. And this triune, singular God of the universe is to be worshiped as creator and redeemer. So why do we worship? Why does a disciple worship? Well, first, worship is what we were created for. We see throughout the scriptures that humanity was created to worship in perfect relationship with God. We recited earlier in our service the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That foundational relationship that we were made for was broken through humanity's sinful rebellion against God. And ever since then, we've been filling that void with idols. We make idols of stone and wood, idols of pleasure and greed, idols of our own imagination, little gods that we create and control. We fill our need to worship with anything and everything except the one who is worthy of it, the only true God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to save us that we might worship rightly again as we were created to do. The disciple also worships because God is worthy of worship. Both the ancient and the new songs of heaven that we just read in Revelation begin with, worthy are you. Worship is an end in itself. We must reclaim this truth for the modern church. We worship God not because of what he does for me, not because I feel like it, not because I need something from him. We worship God because he is God and he is worthy of our worship, period. Utilitarian and consumeristic worship has no place in the Christian church. And yet I fear it is everywhere. How do I know this? For one, our worship vocabulary has significantly changed in the modern church. Many worship songs written today have lyrics that are all about how I feel about God, what he does for me, how he satisfies my needs, versus songs that proclaim the deep truths of the Bible about the nature and character of God as revealed there. The presence of Scripture in the form of readings, prayers, and songs has all but disappeared from many churches except to an occasional reference to reinforce one of the pastor's points in a sermon. Sermons are often no more than self-help sessions by motivational speakers instead of spirit-filled preaching centered on what God has to say in his word. Many churches spend tons of time and resources figuring out how to entice folks to give their church a try as though they were the latest fast food chain in the neighborhood. And instead of focusing on God's word and prayer, many have given way to gimmicks and showmanship to entertain the masses. Just this week, I ran across a Facebook post of a church in our state about 90 miles up the road This church is in a denomination that we would call evangelical, one that we would assume is holding fast to the truths of God's word, on the same team, if you will, 
And here was their plug. We know you love the lake and football. We've designed a service just for you. Starting September the 8th, we will offer 9 a.m. services, worship Jesus, and then go to the lake or the game. Brothers and sisters, if this sentiment represents the state of the modern American church, then we had better fall to our knees in repentance and beg God to save us from ourselves. I mean, why didn't they just go ahead and finish out the reality of that opening statement? We know you love the lake and football more than Jesus. Folks, once and for all, the worship of the eternal, holy, triune God of the universe is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about God and God alone. He alone is worthy. Theologian Leander Keck says, an emphasis on what we get out of a worship service, above all that we feel good about ourselves, displaces the theocentric praise of God with anthropocentric, man-centered, utilitarianism. Since the worship of God is an end in itself, making worship useful destroys it. Because this introduces an ulterior motive for praise, and ulterior motives means Manipulation, taking charge of the relationship, thereby turning the relation between creator and creature upside down. Folks, we worship God not to check off our worship box for the week on our to-do list, not to see if we can get some self-help for the week, and not to satisfy the emotional high of our current mood swing. We worship God because he is worthy of our worship. And finally, worship is the fulfillment of the gospel. Reading again in Revelation 5, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began, this is John, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you 
to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's going on here? Why was no one found to be worthy to open the scroll? And why did that cause John to burst into uncontrollable weeping? Why was this so important? What was the big deal? Well, if you read on, you'll see that the scroll represents final judgment upon sin and mankind and idolatry. Maybe that makes it even more puzzling why John would be weeping that it wasn't opened. In this scroll and its contents, the scales of eternal justice would be balanced. And unless this happened, all the atrocities of history, the wickedness of generations, the inequities of this fallen world would go unpunished, and God's plan for bringing the universe into balance would all be in vain. John somehow knew that if this scroll couldn't be open, then the culmination of all things couldn't happen. Final judgment and justice had to be demonstrated in the cosmos. And only Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of God's people, was worthy to open the scroll of judgment. Only Jesus could complete the justice necessary to make the universe right again. God the Father gave to Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the heir of all things. In the final stanza of the hymn, This is My Father's World, we have these words. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. As we join together each week in worship, we affirm these realities just by our presence. As we enter into the worship of heaven, we acknowledge our citizenship in that kingdom and our trust in our eternal and holy God. It's so easy, isn't it, even as God's people, to fall into the lie that this temporal world that I can see and, and touch and feel is all there is, and this is my reality. When in fact, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a citizen of his eternal kingdom. And that kingdom isn't just off in the distance somewhere in time and space. It is present, real, and on the move. We saw it in a video today. One of the beautiful realities of coming to corporate worship each week is that it helps us reorient ourselves to the kingdom of God. As we enter into heaven's worship with our brothers and sisters, the things of eternal significance become more important than the temporal stuff out there that we deal with day in and day out. If we're not careful, 
The default position in our lives will be what the world is pouring into us. We will be overrun with the cares and fears and anxieties of those around us, consumed with a 24-hour news cycle and oversaturated with popular culture. We are then in danger of letting those voices crowd out the voice of our Heavenly Father who speaks peace and hope to his children in the midst of our fallen world. We must spend as much time as possible worshiping the one who is worthy that we might see clearly the path ahead. And this follows with every area of our lives. Are you living for the here and now or are you living as a member of the eternal kingdom of God? If it's the latter, then you won't ever have to ask yourself this question. I wonder if I should go to church today. Or how many times a month is enough to go to worship? And while having a clear understanding of our destiny and reality is not the motivation for worship, it is a byproduct. It helps us navigate the week in a way that reminds us whose we are and whose kingdom we belong to. Often our brothers and sisters whose health is failing are some of the greatest encouragers to us if we will listen to them. When they reach the point that their bodies no longer allow them to get out of their homes or facilities, do you know what they say the very often that they miss the most? Corporate worship. They get it, folks. They can see the other side, and they know there is a very thin veil between what we do here and what we will be doing there. I don't know about you, but I'm just tired of death and illness all around me. I'm weary of the hostility and anger in our society and world. I hate the evil that happens all around us and goes unpunished. I groan every time I hear about another affair or divorce. I join the psalmist in saying, why do the wicked prosper? How long, O oh Lord? This is why we need the worship of heaven. We need to remember that we're part of the winning team, that it's all going to be okay, really, really okay. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more disappointment. We must come together and worship the one true living God. One of my favorite songwriters today, Christian songwriters, is Andrew Peterson. We've had the privilege of having Andrew here as a guest artist a number of times. And he has a relatively new song, I think it's been about a year or so, that has quickly become a favorite among Christians entitled, Is He Worthy? In this song, Andrew attempts to paraphrase and interpret this very passage that we're looking at today. And as we close, perhaps his lyrics will help us in our understanding the words are in a call and response style with a single voice asking the questions and the hosts of the saints in chorus responding. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. 
Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? He is. He is. He is. Oh, Father, you are worthy of our worship. We are humbled that you even accept it. May we be pleased and excited and joyful to run to this place every week as we join our hearts and voices together in the worship of Almighty God, as we enter into your throne room with the hosts of heaven and join our voices with theirs to lift you up. And may that be our hope. May we find steadfast love there and mercy for our time of need, grace in the measure of our need each day until we join you completely and fully in that place. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.